This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Judge Gary Sanders. Now, Judge Sanders is known locally as both fair and compassionate when it comes to his work and has spent a lot of time in our drug courts here in Marion County. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into law, restorative justice, malpractice, protecting our youth, addiction, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Judge Gary Sanders. Enjoy. Well, Judge Sanders, I want to say firstly, thank you so much. It is eight o'clock in the morning. You came to my home. My two dogs have lost their minds and barking in the background. So we'd be mitigating the disaster the moment you walk through the door. So I want to welcome, welcome you to my home today. Thank you so much, James. And your pups are good pups. <laughs> They're loud this morning. All right. Um, so you have a very interesting birthplace or, or where you were raised, and it's something that we've got in common. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, interesting. So I was born in Coral Gables <laughs> at the, the University of Miami, but I was adopted at birth and I was raised in Hialeah, Florida, which is, I think, our connection is yes. what you indicated to me. And I lived in Hialeah for 18 years before I went to the University of Florida. And um, the author Carl Hyacin has described Hialeah as the armpit of Miami-Dade County. I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a diverse community, and I had a lot of great teachers and great friends, and I still keep in touch with a lot of them. Don't get down there as often as I used to, but um, yeah. It's very moist, I'll say that. Yes. There's a lot of canals. But, um, yeah. So, Hialeah's history, from what I understand, and for people listening, I was a Hialeah firefighter. It was my very first apartment. Um, it was an English or British settlement, but obviously, as time has gone on, when I worked there, I think it was 97% Cuban. You know, all the signs are in Spanish. If you don't speak Spanish, you're not going to do very well in there. Um, what what was the kind of demographic and what did it look like? Um, and, and were you an English or Spanish speaker back then? Sure. So I am about to turn 60. So that kind of gives you a, a time frame. I lived there from 1962 to 1980. I went to, I went to public school all the way through. I was, um, I had many, many Cuban American friends and I was as a white male American, um, probably the, a minority in my school. I had, you know, mostly Latin friends. I took five years of Spanish. And if you ask me now, I could speak un poquito. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and it's become more diverse since then. It's become um, more heavily populated with um, a Latin community. So that, that was my upbringing and um, I enjoyed it very much. 
So I, I think I was hired really technically on paper as a minority in the, <laughs> in the highly fire department, but they had, and this isn't me being, you know, throwing sort of kind of, you know, prejudicial um, terminology, but they had two phrases. You're either a Julio or a Johnny based on, you know, your ethnicity. So I thought that was sure. quite funny. Um, well, what about your parents? What were they doing back then? So um, uh, my mom was the first female insurance adjuster for Aetna insurance company. She worked in Miami and when I was born decided to stay home. So mom stayed home with me. They had always wanted children, couldn't have children and they adopted me. And I was the only one. So I grew up an only kid. My dad worked as a, uh, uh, a lineman for the city of Miami, which was magical for me as a little boy because he worked at the Orange Bowl for every single Miami Dolphin game and University of Miami game and any special events. He worked um, the Orange Bowl Parade every year, the Junior Orange Bowl Parade. I mean, I got to, I was in, I got to go on the top of the press box and throw off paper airplanes and the underbelly of the Orange Bowl and turn on the lights. And it was fun. Got to do those sort of things. Now, I had a, a, a guest on who was a firefighter down south um, and his early story was being a lineman. And so, when you think about South Florida and we have all the hurricanes, that's, you know, a, a pretty you know, unique profession to be in during those storms. So did he have any kind of? Oh, yeah. So the, um, I left before Hurricane Andrew, but there were always storms going on and dad was always on call. And really, he was a public servant, right? I mean, he was on call 24-7 if anything happened. And if a grid went out in Miami, dad was up in the middle of the night and he was going to take care of things, whether climbing a pole with his the boots with the hooks on them, believe it or not, they did it back then, or getting up in the bucket truck. But yeah, a lot of a lot of memories about that. Now, I know that you're a runner today. What were you playing or what were your athletics when oh, you were school age? Let me correct you on that. I, I used to be a runner. And <laughs> it then says it, in the paper. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. In 2016, when I was fortunate enough to be appointed to the bench, I had just had an accident and I tore most of the patellar tendons in my right knee and pretty much ended my running career. Um, I was a terrible athlete as a kid. Not, I, I, I played on a baseball team and mostly the coach told me to get hit by the ball so I could get on base and um, I can laugh about it now. Um, <laughs> it doesn't hurt as much. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, I've had lots of therapy, so I'm, I'm good. But um, yeah, I, I didn't play a lot of sports as a kid. It wasn't my strength. I focused more on academics and books and things like that, which I fortunately excelled at. Um, but as I got older and I had boys of my own and they played baseball and my Oldest son did a lot of cross country and track, and my wife is a fitness nut. Um, and I knew, you know, working a sedentary job, I needed to get some exercise. I did start running, and I found it to be very, very therapeutic, a great time for thinking and reflecting, um, a great way to keep my cardio up and try to stay fit, and worked my way up to a half marathon and did that in Chicago in 09. Just super proud of that. <laughs> Um, but now I have all of my running, um, medals and numbers in my chambers and they sit there like gathering dust. It's kind of sad. <laughs> well, it's interesting with the running. Um, I had a, a judge on judge Craig Mitchell, who, mm -hmm. um, is in basically the skid row area. And he was, guys, we're going to get into it later. He was, um, 
I think it was kind of more of a drug court as well, but he was seeing these same people come through over and over and over again. When he left his, his courthouse, he was seeing the homelessness right on his doorstep. So he started a thing called Skid Row Marathon, or sorry, Skid, Skid Row Runners Club. Marathon was the uh, documentary's name. But he took these people, gave them community, gave them, you know, time outside, gave them an, an outlet, an exercise, a purpose. And started seeing, you know, amazing results as far as some of these men and women turning their lives around. Absolutely. So that's have, great. Have you seen, maybe not even in the courtroom, just, just in general, some, as you touched on the mental health side, some of the, the mental benefits of the running for you or the people around you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think it's all about balance in your life and, and, you know, Health is so important, and there's got to be some physical balance to your life besides the spiritual and the emotional is what I believe. And if I can't run, you know, I'm doing other things now. I've got – I'm rehabbing my back. I herniated a disc, but I'm doing a lot of core exercises now, and it just really helps me have a little more balance in my life. And when I'm not doing that, I feel it, and I feel terrible. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's my experience with it. But really, as a kid – terrible in sports so don't give up in my junior high school i don't know if you remember palm springs junior high down in the hialeah area um i was only there working for things 11 months so okay. i didn't get to know it super well in the pe department this is how it worked if you were do you, do you remember the presidential fitness award that was the award. i do yeah my wife actually said she did that yeah so did my wife she likes to rub that in so if you had that award you got a gold t-shirt in physical education and that was your t-shirt if you missed the award by about one or two pull-ups you would get the red the coveted no excuse me coveted navy blue t-shirt and then if you were an okay athlete you get the red t-shirt and if you were the bottom of the barrel it was the white t-shirt and for three years james i wore the white t-shirt and i still own that t-shirt as a reminder to me that you're still going to be okay the labels don't apply and you know it's just funny so another one of the guests i had on the show is um doug mitchell and he made a film called the motivation factor and it was about Basically, the program that I think JFK kind of got that idea with the T-shirts, but it was interesting because even if, for example, you were the kid with the white shirt in this program, maybe one of the less athletic of all the children, cumulatively, the entire school was probably so much fitter than our schools today. So with someone that went through that and didn't excel specifically, how, did you still see what you learned and in that program carry over to later in life? Real, in terms of physicality, no. I have to be honest with you. I really, I didn't get much out of the physical aspects of it. It was just emotionally traumatic for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I dreaded PE. I dreaded the locker room. I don't, I just had bad experiences with all of that. So as far as career aspirations, um, I know we had the same initial goal, um, which was med school. And I believe it was the same uh, hurdle that, that stumbled <laughs> us both. So talk to me about your initial career goals and then how that transitioned to law. Yeah, I think as a kid growing up, if you seem to do well in school, you get pigeonholed and you're going to go to med school, right? And that's what you're going to do. And I had this desire to be a pediatrician and I um, I did pretty well in my classes um, in high school. But when I got to the University of Florida among people that were brilliant and I took um, calculus and I took chemistry, I did not do as well as I had hoped. And um, failure was a hard thing for me. And um, I just, I knew that if I was to continue in that, 
um, I would probably not get the grades I needed to to get in medical school. And so I reassessed what I needed to do and wanted to do and what my passion was. And my extracurricular time in high school was all journalism. And so I chose to, the University of Florida had a great journalism program, and I decided to switch majors to broadcasting. It's now called telecommunications. But what a hard phone call to my parents, you know, saying, "Mm, I'm not going to be a doctor. And typical of that, you know, you think the parents are going to be really disappointed, but they were more than supportive and excited for me. And I loved it. So that's, that's what I did in college is I pivoted probably my um, second semester to journalism, focused on that, um, did a lot of work at the radio station and the television station there. And then getting ready to graduate, I had met my future wife and knew that in order to progress in that career, you start off in small markets and you work up and you work up and you work up and you move a lot. And my wife does not like change and she didn't want to move a lot. She wanted to grow roots somewhere. And so a couple of friends encouraged me to take the law school entrance exam and I did it on a whim. And surprisingly, I did well enough to get accepted to the University of Florida. And so my wife and I got married five days before law school started. (laughs) And uh, it was crazy. And um, she graduated from nursing school at the same time and worked at Shands on the pediatric floor and kind of was my sanity during law school and helped me through that. And that was a whole experience. But anyway, three years of law school and then here in Ocala ever since, which is surprising. But yeah. So you live vicariously through her as a pediatrician now. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, I, when I went to, in England, you do what's called GCSEs up mm-hmm. to 16, then there's a two-year thing called A-levels. And that was the same thing for me, is in high school level, chemistry was chemistry and physics was physics. Well, in A-levels, chemistry and physics were math. Mm-hmm. And so I was just completely, you know, thrown. So I can totally uh, <laughs> understand, you know, that shift. Yeah. So before we get into the legal journey, um, you mentioned a couple of times about the traumatic element of especially your physicality and, and the sports thing. You know, a lot of people come on here, soldiers and firefighters, and usually they had a very positive experience. But talk to me about that. You know, what's the, what's the dark side of that pressure? If, you know, same way as I didn't fit in in a math classroom, <laughs> you know, when you don't fit in, and, you know, especially in that school. It, well, I think it's an odd journey for me, James, because not until recently, like in the last three years, have I really started delving into my childhood and um, traumas that I experienced and how it Im- impacts the person that I am today. But I truly do believe for anybody that is adopted, if you don't get in touch with the abandonment issues that go along with that, um, you know, being in- intimately connected to your mother for nine months. And even though you're not outside the womb, there is an intimate connection there. And when you are born and you're adopted into a family, a family that loves you, and my family loved me very much, there's always something in your head about something's wrong with me. Why would anybody decide they didn't want me? What's my story? And of course, my parents, very loving, but didn't want to focus on that didn't want to talk to me a whole lot about whatever they knew. It was a private adoption. Um, And so there was always something in my head that I wasn't quite, I didn't fit in with anybody. And at any moment, somebody was going to reject me or not accept me. And so 
by that, I became such a people pleaser, and I wanted to do things to always please people so nobody would be upset with me, right? And so I chose things like, well, I'm going to be a doctor because that's going to please my family, or I need to be physical because that'll please my dad, and then I failed at that, and that was disappointing. So you really, some of these things you don't really realize until you get back, it's, it gets to self-awareness, and that really ties in so well with drug court and the people that go through that program and trying to figure, unlock What's going on? Why do I need this drug? Um, you know, what was, what was, what traumatic thing happened to me in my life where I turned to this substance to fill a need? And so I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does completely. Yeah. And then that's, that's the thing. One thing that people don't think about in my profession and, you know, military and law enforcement is we had a life before we put that uniform on. And that is rarely ever discussed. And so, you know, what's sad is they'll do screening. They'll do a polygraph, which I don't know if you've ever delved too much into that. I've never had to do that. It's a complete smoke and mirrors BS. It really (laughs) is. And then you have this crazy psych test that I've asked psychologists and psychiatrists about. And they're like, no, it's just, it's, it's, you know, not even held with any regard as far as an actual evaluation, but it's box checking. And so what I've, you know, suggested many times now as interviews that we take that same budget and we put our new responders through five counseling sessions. They may yes. have nothing to offload at all. Or they may, you know, like many of my guests have been sexually abused, grew up around addiction, violence. And then also a big one is, you know, the, the foster and or adoption. Yeah. I'm not good enough. Yeah. You know, why didn't they want me? Why didn't they keep me? So there's so much to unpack before you enter, whether it's my profession, whether it's your profession. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm sure I can imagine the trauma that you probably absorb in the legal field, especially in the criminal side, is, is you know, very, very similar to uh, first the, responders. The actual worst was in when I, my, my first assignment on the docket um, was juvenile dependency, which for those that don't know what that means, because that is a foreign word to many people, and it was to me, is a child that becomes dependent upon the state because they've either been abused, abandoned, or neglected. So day in and day out, in my courtroom, I was absorbing all of the trauma that was going on in these families' lives due to lots of things, mental health issues, drug issues, um, crime, um, just parents who really shouldn't have been parents. And I was taking children out of the home. I was the decider, the judge and the jury on whether your parental rights should be terminated or not. Um, I was placing kids for adoption, meaning you're not worthy anymore as a parent and you're going to be, you child are going to be taken out of your home that you've known all your life and you're going to be placed in a new home, foster home or eventually adoption. Which I've lived and not enjoyed thoroughly. Okay. Well, I'd love to hear no, I'm more saying, about I mean, that. say you, 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 know, you yeah. you're a product oh, of me, adoption yeah. and you know that there's a cost to well, that. See, and I didn't realize that. And that's when I started realizing <clears throat> that there was something in the back of my head that this was triggering something for me. And I, I there were a couple of times where I would have to excuse myself from the courtroom and just take a deep breath and be like, why is this impacting me so much? What am I doing here? Um, one time I had um, a little, he wasn't little, he must have been 11 or 12, and he was sitting in the jury box and dad was in his prison um, garb, uniform, sitting at council table. And he was going away for, dad was going away for a long time. And you only have a year under the law in Florida to get your act together to be reunited with your children. And he knew he wouldn't have that opportunity. And he wanted the best for his son. So he's voluntarily relinquishing his rights to his son in front of his son. And I have to take him through the colloquy, which is meaning questions to make sure 
He's doing it knowingly, intelligently, voluntarily. But as he's doing that, I'm watching the, the boy. He's sobbing. I had to step off the bench. I was just like, this is, I understand how this in the long run could be good for this child. And, you know, God hope he's doing well now. Cause dad was going away a long time and he didn't, he wouldn't have a dad unless something else was available. But yeah, so much trauma. And I think a lot of us in this community, especially, I mean, I've lived in Ocala, I don't know, 30, 35 years now. Some of us live in a bubble and I, I'm admitting that I did. And when I got on the bench and started experiencing juvenile dependency, delinquency, felony, and seeing what the needs are in our community, it's just, it's eye opening. And I encourage everybody to try to get involved somehow to understand that better. Well, we have an amazing facility here called the Kimberley Center. I had uh, um, one of the, the team that's, that used to be there, Maddie Horn. She's also a fellow CrossFit athlete at my gym too. Um, and so I got to tour the facility and, you know, mm-hmm. actually my son even went counseling a few times there too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, got a pretty good understanding of it. And it seems to me that model is incredible for the children. I mean, they're brought there they do one interview with all these different agencies can watch that interview at the same time, Mm -hmm. ask the interviewer to say, hey, can you ask them this, this and this? So you're not putting the kid through it over and over and over again. They're so well trained in the trauma that children experience when they're abused, abandoned or neglected. And that is a safe space for them. Uh, My connection with them was mainly through felony court when... um, allegations were made of sexual abuse and the and the children were brought in for interviews and just the way that the um counselors went about the interview process with open-ended questions and non-judgmental it's really inspiring and a great i can't say enough good things about the people at kimberly center with your exposure to that and then obviously drug court what is the magnitude outside the bubble of the danger that some of these children are in in our communities? The magnitude, for some, just great. I mean, seriously, um, I don't, I didn't come with statistics or anything, and I, I usually do my homework, but I really wanted to be open-ended about this interview, so I wish I had done some homework No, for I you. didn't know I was going to ask that until about three <laughs> seconds ago, so <laughs> that's the way my interviews go. Um, that's fine. Um, well, I mean, just from the perspective of sitting on the bench and any, the current juvenile dependency delinquency judge will tell you this. Family law judges will tell you this. Children are so fragile and so at risk and they just want to be loved and accepted. And when you are living in a home where the parents are in turmoil and there's chaos and the parents don't love each other or there's drugs and alcohol and chaos. And I mean, I just watched you kiss your son and say goodbye and he's going to have a good day at school. Um, there's not a lot of that going on in, in a lot of homes in our community. And so I'm going to have an opportunity here soon, I hope, to be involved uh, with Children's Alliance in Marion County, which is a great group of professionals that are keyed in on um, children's issues um, in Marion County and how to improve the situation. And they look at lots of things, not only graduation rates, but suicide rates, dependency rates, things like that to try to, to make things better. But it's a lot worse than you think it is. I don't want to be a doomsayer because there's a lot of people in the program that are trying to do their best to make it better. And God bless them. But you can imagine, I mean, the people that work for the Department of Children and Families, there's such a high turnover rate because the trauma is so high. And they're 
caseload is huge and they just a lot of them can't handle it for too long and i understand that so yeah no it's it's horrendous i mean i got to see with my son that you just met um he went through something and i've spoken about this and and luckily the law has changed now but he went through something where he was going through some issues in the other household his mother and, and the boyfriend at the time and um it was definitely sending him into you know some depression and some other things so he was you know going through some things he was in a classroom started crying from what i understand that particular teacher was very compassionate and kind and just sent him to to guidance counseling um and uh but in that particular moment he'd had kind of intrusive thoughts which are according to the, the kimberley center you know age appropriate and just you know when someone picks on you you in your mind you're like you know you just you know you don't like him very much and so he was explaining what he was imagining and they sent him to the centers for three days oh. and disregarded and then there's an extremely well-written protocol like when i reviewed after you know because i asked for all the paperwork and everything um, and so the, the principal of that school and the SRO in that school completely just decided, all right, this is, this is, you know, it's home time. I'm just going to send this kid off for three days into a, basically a prison. Um, and then when I went there visiting him, I watched other kids from this school cycling through as well. Now I was, you know, was, was very public and brought in experts on the show and discussed this because, I mean, this was obviously an issue not here, but just in the whole state, which means probably the whole country. Um, but we got a new kind of i went to the school i went to the sheriffs and they blamed each other it was absolutely disgusting but then we got some new um, leaders in the school side i went back to them again and said hey two years ago this happened to my son it still needs to be fixed and actually i think all the pressure from all these groups and parents and you know other voices they'd actually put into law now that what they did is illegal oh interesting so that got changed but well, good for you you talked about the schools what scared me, and again, I only got to go outside my bubble in that area because it happened to my child. And then I had people telling me, thank you for doing that because a lot of parents don't advocate for their children and they're in this kind of you know, system the whole time. Um, but even in our schools, I think there's definitely potential for us to do a lot better in the mental health side because you know, we, we trust these institutions with our children and then things like this happen, that actually made his mental health a lot worse for a while. Um, yeah, so. and there's so many educators that are so well-trained in, in, in childhood trauma and how to respond to it and how to react, but there are some that are definitely not and um, there should be training for everyone, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, then with the, <laughs> um, the, let's go to the drug court then. So. Sure. We talked about, you know, the impact of, you know, childhood trauma on yourself. You know, I have my own thing. We just talked about my sons as well. So that is obviously a contributing factor to mental ill health. I've had many guests, people like Johan Hari and some other incredible people talking about, you know, mental health and addiction and the you know, very, very strong correlation. You come from the, the juvenile side. You now find yourself in the, in the drug court side. What were your initial impressions of that? epidemic and you know the 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 kind of childhood trauma element to that wow okay so it's interesting how i ended up there i um i did juvenile for three years i started with dependency then i got into delinquency and delinquency are when you know children are charged with crimes but they're not treated like an adult and it's more of a restore restorative justice um scenario where we're really trying to force 
not just force, but introduce the children to services and the parents to make them better and avoid that in the future. And it was my first taste of restorative justice. And I, I really started to like that. And I was doing juvenile drug court there. Um, and then I got switched to felony and felony was great. I loved, I had two years on felony, but it's definitely more focused on the punitive aspect of, um, crime. You are convicted either by a jury or you enter a plea because you've admitted that you were guilty or you plead no contest. And um, there, it's a point system when we know what we need to do with you based on the point system. Um, very kind of black and white. There's some room for some subjectiveness, but not much. Um, but while I was on there, I was asked um, when Judge Ullman rolled off or actually it was Judge Rogers rolled off of drug court to see if um, I would be interested in doing that because I had a juvenile. And reluctantly, I said yes, not really knowing what I was getting into. And um, definitely, I can tell you now, it, this is, I am, you have, you have had some wonderful experts on your podcast who know a lot more than me and are much more educated than me in all of this. And mine is mostly experiment and what I've learned in seminars and not just experiment, but experience, I should say, in being in the program and, and listening to the providers and watching people in my program. But trauma plays such a big part in most of their lives. And what I do is um, I tell them when they come in that I have three rules for drug court. And I stole this from my good friend, Judge Militello in Sumter County, so I give him full credit. Um, it's show up, try hard and tell the truth and showing up i just tell them you need to be a warm body somewhere right you got it you got to come to drug court you've got to go to treatment when your your color gets called you got to go get your drug test you got to be there um trying hard means is once you get there you're not just a bump on the log you know you're actually participating in whatever it is if you're in drug court you're speaking up if you're at therapy you're not just sitting there you're actively participating um if you're getting drug tested, you're testing negative most of the time. We don't make them test negative all of the time, but that's the goal, right, before you can graduate. But all those things tell me you're trying hard. But the most important rule I tell them is tell the truth. And they're like, of course, you know, we're in court. But I explain to them telling the truth isn't just about telling me the truth, your treatment provider or your counselor, um, but telling yourself the truth. Why, how, how did I end up here right now where I'm about, if I don't successfully complete this program, I'm going to prison. For the listeners that don't understand, prison is not the jail. Jail is where you're sentenced for no more than 12 months. Prison is where you go away for more than 12 months to serve a sentence. And most, almost everyone in my program, if they are not successful in drug court, they go back before the judge because they violated this condition of their probation and they will be sentenced and they'll go to prison. That's a big motivator, but you'd be surprised. It's not a big motivation for some of them. But I tell them that if they can get in touch with what triggers them, what their trauma has been in their life, it's, it's the word self-awareness that I try to drill into them that they can figure out how they got here and how to avoid it in the future. And for a lot of them, it boils down to people, places, and things. They talk a lot about that in treatment. You know, who are the people in my life? Where are the places that I went? What are the things that I did where I was always abusing? And sometimes you identify some close family members or loved ones or spouses, you know, or longtime girlfriends or boyfriends, and you know you've got to cut that tie or you're never going to get it get out. And I've watched people do that. It's hard. Some of them can't do it. I've lost, I, I've seen people die in drug court that I never expected. 
that were doing great in the program, people that were doing great in the program, and it's almost like they self-sabotaged and they end up arrested for shoplifting at Walmart because they needed to feed their habit more. Um, I don't understand the psychology behind all of it, James, but I know that we have about, I don't know right now, my, my folks in drug court who are amazing could tell you the numbers. I think we have about 70 people in drug court now, and it's a great community. They support each other. They hold each other accountable, and that's what we try to do. So there's a lot of stigma around what we would call illicit drugs, you know, the mm-hmm. quote-unquote illegal ones. I know there's a parallel court DUI, yeah. and that to me is, you know, it's – I've said this a lot. I think most people, if they put their hand on their heart, myself included, can think of times where, you know, even if you weren't blitzed, you went to a restaurant and you had two glasses of wine, then you had a dessert wine or, a, you know, whatever. You know damn well if you'd blown at that point, you would be in DUI as well. But we have this – ivory tower mentality where you're it's okay to be consuming alcohol but look at that crackhead over there you know what a piece of whatever what is what is again the magnitude of the 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 dui side the out the overuse of alcohol consumption because i think that's the kind of elephant in the room when we talk about addiction yeah so you should talk to my colleague judge Lori cotton because she runs the dui court in Marion County and it's for misdemeanors. We don't have a DUI felony court um, and she could speak better to that. Do I have some people in my, our program, felony drug court whose main addiction is alcohol? Not many. We're looking at mostly people that are abusing opiates, um, painkillers, things like that, um, cocaine, a lot of marijuana use, um, and scarily enough, a lot of fentanyl. You know, I can't say enough about how scary fentanyl is. And a couple people that we've lost in drug court, you know, thought that they were doing cocaine and it was laced with fentanyl and they died. Um, but those are the kinds of folks I'm saying, no, you're absolutely right. Alcohol is a drug and it is a drug that can lead to terrible addiction. It can break up families. It can ruin lives. It's just not something we see on a felony level that I see in my courtroom because I only see felonies. And really, a lot of people have a misconception that you're only qualified for drug court if you're charged with a drug-related crime. That's not accurate. You may be charged with shoplifting or you may be charged with, I don't know, pick a crime, as long as it's not violent. Um, but that crime is motivated by um, the drug use in your life. So that we see a lot of those people. So that takes me to something that I've, you know, people listen to this podcast a lot. And they've heard me say this a lot, but I think it's such an important story to tell. Having so many guests from around the world, you start to see, wow, you know, like Norway's prison system. You talk about restorative justice. This is incredible. They live in houses, not prisons, you know, and they have jobs and education and the guards don't carry weapons. And I think their recidivism rate is like 20%. It's, it's, it's insane. Well, Portugal has, uh, they decriminalized addiction. So there's this kind of, whenever I tell people this, oh, so you can go to Publix now and buy, you know, crystal meth? No. no. (laughs) You're caught with a personal use of crystal meth. You don't get put in handcuffs and taken to a jail. You get sent to an interview and educated on the resources available to you. So now what happens is rather than the legal system being completely overwhelmed with addicts, now the, the the dealers, the smugglers, they still go to prison. You know, they still get um, the you know the full force of the law. But 
these other people aren't even told you have to go. I think that's one thing that we do differently here. If you don't go and do this counseling, you're going to go to prison. Prison. They remove the stigma of the the criminality element. So now you can actually come out and put your hand up and say, "Hi, I'm an addict," without you know the fear of a a, um, a criminal record that will then stop you getting a job. So they have addiction counseling, they have mental health counseling, they have job creation, and they went from the worst addiction you know, crisis, I, think, I have to look it up, it was either Europe or the world, to the lowest, just by this in 10 years, so decriminalizing addiction. We talked about this multi-generational trauma that sets a lot of these boys and girls up for you know, problems with addiction. Now, as you just touched on as well, to me as a paramedic, a lot of the ripple effect crimes that are making our you know, neighborhoods dangerous ultimately stem from prohibition of drugs as well and addiction. What is your perspective on the, the success of the way we've had the quote-unquote war on drugs? And could we be more proactive and take some of these other models from around the world to move the needle on, on this crisis that we're in at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I'm really not prepared to answer, to be honest with you. Um, you know, as a judge, when you take the bench, you swear to uphold the Constitution, right, and uphold the laws of Florida. Um, so that's what I do. I, I can't make law from the bench. Um, I can't change the law. If you're not happy with the law, you talk to your legislature. You can't talk to me. Between you and me and whoever's listening to this, do I as a judge get frustrated sometimes when I see that we could do better with the system for somebody that's in on a drug charge that's now been, they now have a crime on their record for something that was a blip on the radar absolutely drives me crazy. Um, I'm stuck with applying the law, right? And I think that's why I like drug courts so much because even though it's within the criminal system that we currently have, there is a chance for redemption and restoration and healing. And these people aren't just graduating because they're sober. I mean, you know, addiction is a lifelong problem no matter whether you're sober or not, right? But by the time they get out, we want them to be productive members of society even though that even if um, they have a, a drug addiction problem. So I wish I could answer your question better. Um, I'd, I love to read about models like that, and I would love to see experiments like that. I don't know who's going to do it and who's brave enough to do it, right? But um, yeah, it could be amazing. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's the answer we need to hear. Like it's, it's hard for law enforcement to answer that question. Yeah. You know, so I think that's what we need to hear is all these different organizations. I mean, imagine being a police officer and enforcing those laws. Yeah. And I always point to the show Cops. If you look at the older cops, they'll chase, you know, car chases and putting all these lives in danger and in a foot pursuit and a struggle. And they'll be like, okay, here's, you know, a user's amount of marijuana and they, they put them in handcuffs and off they go. Now those poor guys are coming out of prison going, wait, the, the thing that I just served 20 years for is legal now? You know, even testosterone, you know, steroids used to be a big taboo. Now you can get your physician at the men's clinic down the street to pump you full of that stuff, yeah. you know? So I think, yeah, I mean, I understand why you can't. I think we need to hear yeah. why you can't, you know, yeah. where are some of the barriers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, judges are limited in what we can do and really need to be careful about what we say because we, you know, we're the third branch of the government. We are supposed to honor and uphold the law. And I don't want anybody to hear this and think that I'm criticizing the law. I'm not. Um, it serves a really good purpose. And some people, let's be honest, um, they're super violent and they need 
they need to be punished. Um, but there are certain crimes, and we really focused on this in juvenile, trying to get the kids turned around um, so they wouldn't end up in felony court. And I can do this in my felony drug court, too, trying to get people turned around so that they are productive members of society. Even with an addiction, you can be a productive member of society. I can't tell you, James, how often, though, I would see the kids that I had in juvenile delinquency court four years ago, five years ago, make it to my felony court. And it was, I would have that conversation with them. I said, I can't believe you're in felony court. Can you believe you're here? What happened? You know, we talked about this. I warned you that this could happen. And my options for you now are a lot less than they were when you in ju when juvenile. And I could provide to you all of these services. By the time you make it to felony court, the goal is not restoration. I'm just going to tell you it's to be punished for what you did, period. And that's the atmosphere that we currently live in. And for better or for worse, that's where we're at. Well, with that, again, I mean, you know, this is probably another one that'd be hard for you to answer, but, you know, I think it's it's great to hear, even if you can't. Um, like I said, Norway, amazing model, working incredibly well. Now, again, people always look at the extremes. That horrible human being that murdered all the kids on the Norwegian summer camp, Oh yeah, he's in a maximum security box. So they have that still. The person, you know, the, the crimes of passion and you know addiction-related crimes, all these things, they look at them, okay, you can be rehabilitated, and, and they show that they do. Um, with uh, our system, if I'm... With, pulling statistics out of my very, very challenged brain. <laughs> I think we are 4% of the world's population and we have 75% of the world's incarcerated men oh, and yeah. women. Yeah. We have a profit-based prison system, partially. So I, as a layman, again, the same way as we have a profit-based healthcare system, I don't see a big push towards making people healthier when people are making a lot of money. It's hard to see that restorative justice element on the federal side when our prisons are just growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and what are, what's going on inside the jails and inside the prisons to address the needs of the people that are there? If they're there only to be punished, there's no motivation to provide services for them when they get out so that they can be whole persons and productive members of society. That's, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I encourage people, while you're in prison, I really think you should get drug counseling. I don't even know if it's available, James. I mean, I'm blowing smoke there, right? Mm -hmm. But I know what the problem is. I know my options are limited. I can't do anything for you because you have a certain number of points and you have to go to prison for X, Y, or Z. Um, it's sad. It is. It's absolutely sad. If I know that it's a problem, it's a crime for somebody that's dealt with drug addiction for many, many years. And I'll be honest with you, you can provide all the services you want for some people and they'll never break that cycle, period. Do they need to be incarcerated? Some of them do for the violent crimes that they're committing because of it. Some of them, no. Um, it's just hard. That's one thing that I thought was really powerful. One of my guests, B.C. Sanders, he's a um, law enforcement officer currently and he's worked in you know gangs and drug unit and SWAT. And his thing was, you know, you chase the violence, you know, the addiction, the regular addicts is probably not out there stabbing people and, you know, all that kind of thing. So that's how you kind of, you know, alongside he was he was very for, you know, removal of prohibition as well. But that's what you do if you want to make yeah. the community safer, as you said. Chase the violence. Chase the violence. Yeah. And there are those in the in for 
you know, personal gain, they are trafficking in this stuff. I mean, they're selling it, they're, they're encouraging people to use it. And those people, we need to get them off the streets. Absolutely. It's, and that's with the Portuguese model, you're freeing up all the resources to do that. You're not having, you know, every single addict, you're pulling over and having to do all this paperwork and then they go into your system. And then, yeah. you know, you've got people waiting months and months and months just to see you in the first place. Yeah. There are task force in law enforcement that are designed to look to the source, find the sources, um, which, you know, I applaud. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I love the supply and demand model. Though. If you, as Portugal did, remove the demand, you cut the, the head off the stake. And even, you know, I talk about this a lot, the immigration issue, oh, these, you know, Mexico, build a wall, whatever the, the, you know, the rhetoric is from that particular individual. Well, have you ever asked the question, why are these people fleeing their country? If we never put power into the underworld in Mexico that created these horrendous cartels, how many people would be flooding into this country? And Haiti, I just went on a cruise recently, I think I was telling someone the other day, one of the most beautiful islands I've ever seen. If you could actually, you know, and it's not the America's um, responsibility to do this, but if we could fix the violence in that country, they would be extremely affluent through tourism alone. It's okay. unbelievable. I spent um, a week or so in Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. And if we, we live within 90 miles of Haiti, and if you don't go to Haiti to see what's happening down there, you're missing out on, I mean, it's a tragic it's tragic down there. And like you said, it's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. But it, it's lo almost lawless. And it's, um, you feel like you've gone back in time a hundred years in terms of, um, services and the justice system. It's very, very scary. Um, but yeah, I had a, that had a big, big impact on me. I felt like I, <laughs> I was, you know, um, there was no way to fix what I could see. And it's not about fixing people. It's about loving people and providing services. And we were working mainly with kids, but oof, that, had, that had a big impact on me. You said that was the earthquake? Yeah, it was so January to, of 2010, I think. Right? Yeah. So I try to proactively go through my fire department. It was Orange County at the time. I speak, you know, basic French and, mm. you know, I was a firefighter and a paramedic and was, you know, writing to our chiefs, hey, you know, is there a list? Are we, are we sending people? Yeah. And then like, I mean, days later, they're like, okay, we're, we're, you know, creating a, a group now. And then while they were still finding people alive, they were pulling all the, the USAR teams out. And it just blew my Why? mind. I know. And like you said, they're 90 miles away, an island full of human beings. Yes. Of which many of those men, women, and children, you know, are part of the American culture now. And I just felt to me like it was again, box checking, like, yeah, we'll go for a bit. Yeah. I mean, Haiti's not that big. It's not. We have enough resources to help And it's them. on the same island as the Dominican Republic, which is thriving, mm -hmm. as far as I know. Um, so it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, going back to the drug court for a yeah. moment. With with this in, with this podcast, almost 700 interviews now, some very real common denominators start to emerge from a lot of these conversations. Have you seen um, commonalities as far as contributing factors to these men and women that are before you becoming addicts? Yes. I think that of all of the people I see in drug court, almost all of them have experienced some sort of trauma in their life at some point. Usually it's a childhood trauma or a family trauma. <clears throat> it's a lack of connection. It's a lack of love. Um, it's not being told you're not good enough, not putting yourself first. In other words, 
not being able to cut people out of your life to be a better person. But most all of them, James, have had some sort of trauma in their life that have led them to drugs, um, alcohol, to cover up whatever feelings they have, make them feel better. Um, and that's the commonality, I would say, trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Johan Hari talks about uh, an experiment called Rat Park. And brief overview, they did an experiment to try and show how addictive, I think it was cocaine in this particular thing. Um, and they put these rats in these cages and gave, you know, one water bottle had cocaine in, one water bottle didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rats were drinking the cocaine water bottle. And they're like, okay, well, there we go. It's addictive. Well, then someone had the bright idea to say, well, we put these rats in a cage. Let's create a different environment, put the same two bowls and see how they do. So they create what they call rat park. So imagine a, you know, a, a Disney world for rats, um, and put the two bowls. Well, the rats only drank the regular water. Interesting. So again, childhood trauma environment. I, you know, we were both raised basically. This is your brain on drugs. You know, mm-hmm. these, these drugs have a hook. Once they get you, you can never let go. Um, and now people are realizing that's not true. I mean, there's, you know, there's, of course, it's a contributing factor, but ultimately it's that void that people are feeling, you know, and, and sadly, some of the rhetoric was like, well, I was abused as a child and I was fine. Okay. Well, then teach good, us. Good for you. Yeah. What did you do? And that's right. the problem. So, and it's usually anomalies too. That's, that's the outlier, not the, you know, the main part of the bell curve. So, Danielle Roos is a mutual friend. She's at the gym as well. She told me, and this is why we're doing this, you know, that uh, Gary is, uh, you know, known as this incredibly compassionate judge. It makes me think of that one that, that kind of went viral on, on um, social media. And he was just very kind and compassionate. And people were sharing like crazy because people want to see that kindness. As much as, you know, some of this clickbait violence and nastiness on, online gets spread, I see the same exact surge with the kindness too. So what was it that made you compassionate in the courtroom to you know, have this restorative justice when I've heard of other you know, judges that are you know, completely unfeeling when it comes to addiction? Oh, gosh. You know, that's a hard question. And I appreciate that compliment from Ms. Roos. Um, but, you know, I think with the title of judge comes an incredible amount of power that we have over people's lives, and we really do. I'm not an important person in any means, by any means, but it is a very important job. And you have to take it seriously, and you do have to follow the law. And sometimes we have to be stern. But every person that comes before us is a human being. And they're there for a reason, and they need to be heard, right? And that's whether you're there as a plaintiff in a civil case, which is my current docket, or you're there as a defendant in a criminal case. Um, you have a right to be heard. I have a duty to actually listen and to find out what's going on. And I guess it's my upbringing, maybe my faith. I don't know what it is, James. It's just how I was raised. But um, everybody deserves to be heard and listened to and helped. And so I like to think, and <laughs> when I... When I tell somebody in drug court, look, I warned you this time, this time, and this time that if you didn't get with the program, I'm going to have to remand you back to jail and you're going to sit for a while. When I, I will tell you most of them when I tell them that and I'm speaking to them compassionately and explaining my thought process, they're like, you're right. 
Right. You know, it's that kind of thing where they, when, when they come out, they respect my decision and say, thank you for putting me in. I, I know this is hard for people to hear, but they'll say, thank you for making me sit for a few days at the jail and figure out what's going on in my life so I can get a reboot. But when you have that sort of connection with people, I think it's more effective in terms of a success rate. They, people want to be heard. They want to be loved. They want to be listened to. I can't love you all the time as a judge. I have to follow the law, right? But I can respect you as a human being. And if I do that, I think we accomplish a lot more and we boost confidence in the justice system, right? Because at least you you know you've been heard. Even if I rule against you, you know that you got it off your chest and you were able to be heard. I think that's so important. And I think most judges strive to do that. I don't think I'm an exception there. When the fire service, especially when people start to get burnt out, get compassion fatigue, you know, yeah. one of the phrases I always hated was bum, you know, for the homeless people. Um, and my philosophy was always being compassionate in the back of a, a rescue and ambulance might be that straw that breaks the camel's back for them to start, yeah. you know, changing because yeah. they're going to deal with, with nastiness all day. Yeah. So, you have the opportunity to be compassionate and like you said, for them to be seen. Yeah. And, you know, the homeless issue that you see, I mean, a lot of jurisdictions, they'll just drive them out into a different city or county instead of, again, in my opinion, talking about the addiction element and as, as you touched on, what tools are we giving people when they leave prison or jail to get back on their feet? Or are they, you know, already, you know, behind the eight ball and then it's just a downward spiral from there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, I'm, my church is really involved with the homeless program. We have a Tuesday morning program and we see a lot of the same people all the time. And, um, and uh, when I do first appearances, I do those as a circuit court judge. We do them about three or four times a year. We go to the jail on the weekends and you'll see a lot of people brought in because basically they're, they're sleeping out in public and there's an ordinance against that. And you're kind of like, really? Is this, you know, what we're doing now, the ordinance is important. And if they violate it, you know, they need to, Mm -hmm. that's, that's according to the law, they've done the right thing and they've brought them in. But what are we going to do with this person when we let them out? They're going back to being homeless. Is there a place for them to go? I mean, some of them ask me, don't give me a bond. It's nice to have a hot meal and a place to stay, believe it or not. So it's messed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could be king for a day. (laughs) Don't even. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any things, I mean, again, you today you have to follow the laws that are written down. But if you could proactively use that kindness and compassion and, and the experience that you've had in this legal journey so far, what would be some of the, because I mean, for example, prohibition was put in in 1930s by Harry Anslinger from some very bad reasons. So the law before that wasn't against drugs. So in any of these areas, homelessness, drugs, whatever, um, would there be, you know, how would you tweak our system to improve it and be more proactive? Uh, a lot more um, alternative court programs like drug court, DUI court. We have a mental health court. We have a veterans court. A lot more of those programs would be helpful. If I was king for a day, <laughs> um you know, I'm not going to address prohibition because I have to be careful in terms of my position. Absolutely. But if I could make people love each other and especially children find a way to require love in a home, 
and an upbringing. If somehow, if I don't even think as king, I could do that, James. But I'm telling you, trauma is a, a huge factor in all of the problems that we see in our community today. And if we could get to the root of that problem, somehow as king, I would find a way to get into each and every home and let every child know that they are loved no matter what. And if they can't get it in the home, hopefully get it in the school. You know, not like your son did that one time, but um, through other teachers and counselors and things like that, so that these kids are more whole, more self-aware when they become adults and they don't need to turn to drugs. Um, so that's a terrible answer, probably. No, it's an amazing <laughs> answer. No, it is. And I think that ultimately the subtext for that is that we need our leadership, whether it's local, state, national to unify communities. And yeah. I think me personally, apolitically, mm-hmm. I, I am, I dislike both sides. Let's put it that way. Um, because I've seen nothing but division in our countries. And to me, that it's equals terrible. even more mental health problems. Yeah. You know, and we're just in a crisis. I, I just get messages over and over again from fellow firefighters. We lost this guy. We lost this girl, you know, and it's, it's, it's awful. So it we is. are in a mental health crisis and we need uh, and people I don't to think pull co- us together. COVID didn't help us at all with oh, that in terms of horrendous. personal connection and, you know, being there for each other. It's just been really, really hard on people, especially with mental health issues. So, and it's, it's caused a lot of mental health issues for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got one more topic before we sure. go to some closing questions. Okay. I want to be mindful of your time. Yeah. I know you worked in, in malpractice, medical malpractice, and then even with the school board themselves. So mm-hmm. just again, overview, when I moved to the US, um, when I looked at the yellow pages, when I first came here in the hotels, there was, from looking from the side, about a quarter of the yellow pages was a different color. And you're like, huh, that must be, yeah. you know, doctors or hospitals or something. But it was attorneys. And then as I, this is, I was here in 94 as a camp counselor. So, you know, for really? six years I did that and then ultimately ended up moving here. I have seen not only the ridiculous so-called slip and falls and traffic accidents, you know, where there's not even dust displaced on these two cars and their neck and their back. So I've seen the dark side of the abuse of the law with some of these malpractice suits. As an overview, what could we do differently to stop that kind of, you know, quick fix, excuse me, get rich quick lawsuit philosophy that we have while still protecting the people who actually need to be protected by malpractice? Or is that another one that you can't talk about based on your face? (laughs) Yeah, I I make, for those that aren't watching, I'm making a real big face at this point because, you know, for many, many years, I worked on the defense side of personal injury lawsuits. Not that I didn't handle a few plaintiff's cases, but very few and far between. But I was representing the people that were being sued, whether that be in the malpractice situation, representing doctors and hospitals and nurses, um, representing the school board of Marion County when they were being sued, representing um, insureds like your insurance company. I did a lot of work for USAA insurance company that um, insures veterans, and I got to meet a lot of great people. But my perspective is skewed toward the defense side. And had if I wasn't on the bench right now and I was I had that hat on, I would probably be more free in my comments right now. Okay. And now especially I serve on a civil docket where 
over 50% of my cases are auto accident cases or professional negligence cases. So I have to be really careful about what I say. There are cases that are certainly worthy of bringing and our system is set up in such a way that if you are wronged and you are injured, you are permanently injured and you cannot get recourse from the other side that injured you through either them individually or the insurance company, you have a right to bring a lawsuit. And I fully encourage that, right? So that's one thing to say. Personally speaking, the proliferation of attorney advertising, um, the focus on individual rights as opposed to community, what's good for the community, we have gone down that rabbit hole way too far. And to and this is my own Florida bar. I mean, we regulate ourselves, okay? And the Florida bar has allowed advertising to such an extent. Now, I should say the Supreme Court of the United States did um, back in U.S. versus Arizona, the bar of Arizona. I don't know what. But the purpose of that was to be able to educate the community about what their rights are and their rights to a trial. It's gone way beyond that. It's gone more to have you been personally affronted and if you have look how much money mm-hmm. we can make for you and they're plastering it on billboards now and it's only encouraging people i think to have the first thing they think about when they get injured is who am i going to sue that's not everybody and there are legitimate cases as i already said but i think it's gotten way out of hand personally i mean if you're asking me personally yes but as a judge I have to be unbiased and I am and I've had some really I've been on the civil bench a little over a year now and there have been some um very large plaintiffs verdicts one for 13 million dollars one for 1.3 million dollars um you know in cases that were brought for people that were legitimately injured and a jury it's not me the jury hears the evidence and decides what the damages should be and these are your peers in the community so I applaud that system, and I think justice is done in those cases. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think it mirrors the drug thing. You know, yeah. you, the the, the um, arresting addicts is the same to me as the. And I've literally watched security camera footage of someone doing this. Like it was in Hialeah, mm-hmm. they dumped out a bottle of liquid detergent. They lay down next to it and went ah. You know, those, so as a paramedic and a firefighter, we see that, you know, we, I remember it was an attorney backing out of a, a parking space again in Hialeah, backing out of a parking space, hit another car that just pulled in 2.5 miles an hour or something, and he can't move in his neck. And, and so it was funny because I'm a brand new firefighter. They strapped him to the backboard. We had a Miami rainstorm and they just left him out in the rain while they did all the paperwork and then they put him in the rescue. And I think maybe put the tape over his eyebrows too, if I remember rightly. But, um, but, you know, because there is such an abuse and it's taken, you know, that call is taken away an ambulance and a, and a fire engine from someone who might need it in that, that area. So there's a very, you know, serious side to it. So there have been a lot of um, uh, changes in the law to, 
um, discourage frivolous lawsuits, um, ways to require the other side to pay your cost and attorney's fees um, through proposals for settlement, um, through sanctions for filing frivolous claims for fraud on the court. And, you know, we look at those often. So there have been ways of limiting that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a whole issue unto itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your perspective on that yeah. as well. All right. Well, then going to some closing questions. Okay. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, wow. I can't believe you don't give me these questions in advance. <laughs> um, I, I got turned on within the last year to a, uh, uh, a person who has a graduate degree in sociology, and she's been on a lot of TED Talks. You've probably heard of her, Brene Brown. Oh, yes. Love Brene Brown because she really promotes self-awareness and getting to the root and just being honest with yourself. And um, I highly recommend any of her books um, if you're into self-help books. And I, I'm not usually a self-help book person. Um, I love to read. I have... I have about four books on my nightstand right now that are waiting to be read before while I'm on vacation. I, I'm, this is going to sound really frivolous, but, uh, I'm a huge fan of the John Sanford <laughs> books. Um, it has to do with an investigator in Minneapolis named Lucas Davenport. And I've read every single one of his books and I love them. Um, Patricia Cornwell and the Scarpetta books. I've read all of those. Um, she's a graduate of Davidson and I have a connection there and I think she's a brilliant writer. I love reading those. When I want just pure, I'm going to laugh while I'm in bed and my wife's going to tell me to stop shaking the bed. I read Janet Ivanovich, who, whose character is Stephanie Plum, who is a bail bonds person and she's hilarious and her grandmother is even more hilarious as is her sidekick. And those make me laugh very much. Um, I'm always open for recommendations of books. Um, gosh, I, I just read one, um, and I forget the name of it. I, I, James, there's too many books. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> no, you gave me a low. That was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brene Brown, I think the you know, her whole philosophy on vulnerability is yes. such an important concept for people to, to understand. Absolutely. So good. Brilliant. All right. What about a movie and or documentary? Oh my God. <laughs> You're killing me. Mm, um, well, if you haven't gone to see Where the Crawdads Sing, I would highly recommend that. It's a great um, courtroom drama, and it's um, uh, it's a focus on childhood trauma. What was it called? Where the Where the Crawdads Sing. Crawdads. Okay. It's it's out right now, and um, it's really really well done and good. Um, what other movies do I like? Oh, I, I love movies. My wife is not a big movie person, so it's hard to drag her to the movies. Um, my favorite movie of all times is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with Steve Martin and John Candy, where Steve Martin plays the type A um, OC, OD, uh, OCD person who gets stuck traveling across the country to get home for Thanksgiving with John Candy, who is the exact opposite. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. I love all the Home Alone movies. Um, I love slapstick humor. When people fall down and get hurt, I laugh. This is a terrible toxic trait of mine, <laughs> and I can't believe I admit it. But when little Kevin rigs up his home to 
totally destroy the bad guys with the paint cans and the flames and the oil and the honey and the tax. I just, I can't get enough of that stuff. So, yeah. Well, it's amazing as well. A lot of the the kids that we watched in on screen, yeah. you know, suffered addiction oh as well. Gosh. And when you're a young child, like, wow, I wish I was from Corley Culkin or I Corey I can't even Hayden. imagine what that life was like. Yeah. 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 So, talk about childhood yeah. trauma. Yeah. Send your kids to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, wow. That's a great question. If you have an opportunity to speak to Thomas Burke, he's on Twitter. Thomas, um, brilliant young man. He's about 33 now. He has a wife and a young, brand new young son. And he is, he's now, um, a priest with the United Church of Christ, but he, um, had an interesting high school growing up. He went immediately into the military and went over to Afghanistan and has great stories about what happened there. He was honorably discharged for drug issues, smoking hashish with some locals, and dishonorably discharged is what I should say if I didn't say it right. Ended up going to seminary at Yale where he graduated and he was head of the vet program, the veterans program there. And he speaks truth to power. And he's a real advocate for veterans and getting help for them um, and what life was like in the military and what life is like post-military. And I've kind of formed a friendship with him. My my wife and my kids always give me a hard time because I become Twitter friends with people, <laughs> and which is odd, I know. I, I, I do the same thing. It's so. not many people. But this guy, I actually, we've gotten to know each other and we send messages to each other. And actually, my oldest son and his wife, his wife's an Episcopal priest, and they live up in Connecticut. And they're like... 30 minutes away from Thomas. So I'm going to get to meet my Twitter friend in September when we go up for my granddaughter in a couple weeks when we go up for my granddaughter's baptism. I, if you could get a hold of him and I don't know if you ever do this by phone or how this works. Oh, I do it by zoom as well. Yeah. Okay. So. Great. He would be a great person to talk to. I would highly recommend it. Judge Lori Cotton, who runs our DUI drug court, really good. And, um, she could speak a lot to you and, and pr- pr- provide more perspective about alcohol abuse and what that does. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. All sure. right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you, mm-hmm. which I'm guessing is probably Twitter. Um, oh, no. Now I'm afraid people are going to look at <laughs> No, it's all good. Um, what do you do to decompress? Uh, to decompress, I cook. I love to cook. And you know why I love to cook is because it gives me control over something, right? I get home after a really, really busy day. I'm chopping things. I'm putting things on the stove. I have a recipe. Things turn out the way I want them to. I can sip a adult beverage (laughs) and just it's my total chill time. So um, I do that to relax. I go camping. My wife and I have a 20-foot trailer. It's not a big deal. But we love to camp and be out in nature where I'm totally disconnected from everything and the beach. Um, for over 30 years, we've been going to Crescent Beach every summer. The most beautiful beach on the planet. Absolutely. And when I go over that bridge on 206, mm-hmm. my blood pressure drops and it's where it's my happy place. So those are the things I do to relax. It's funny because Ormond is our closest due east. Yes. And I will drive that extra you know yeah. 40 minutes to go to crescent absolutely not best 90 minute drive ever highly recommend it and now that i have a granddaughter i 
spending time with her on FaceTime calls or as much as I can in person is just the best gift in the world. Beautiful. All yeah. right. Well, then for people that want to connect with you, where's the best place? Um, so the best place to connect with me is I have so many filters. Like, I mean, I, I have privacy things set up on my social media accounts. You're always welcome to reach out to me. I am on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I have to be careful with all of those as a judge. Um, but the best, best place to reach out to me is at the courthouse. I'm on the second floor of the courthouse. Um, Judge Rogers and I share that floor. Um, and uh, you're always welcome to come up. You got to go through security and give me a heads up if you're coming. But especially my drug court people, I tell them after they graduate, I'm not allowed to have contact with them ex parte, it's called, while they're in the program. But after they graduate, I highly encourage them to come see me. And many of them do. And one of them who just graduated is a barber in town. And I promised I'd let him cut my hair if he graduated. And he has. And now I'm, I'm trying to set up an appointment to get my hair cut by Jose. So good job, Jose. Brilliant. <laughs> um, is that Jose... That, that owns barbershops in town? No, he doesn't okay. own barbershops. He works at a particular barbershop, okay. and I promised him he could cut my hair. So Brilliant. hopefully he won't take any revenge out on me. <laughs> <laughs> now, very quickly, one thing I meant yeah. to ask you, um, of course, don't have to name, name names, but what are some of the success stories with this compassion, with this proactive oh, justice? Gosh. I want to, I don't, so I don't keep track of our graduation rates, but I have a feeling that they're looking really good in drug court because people are really clicking in the program. I've never seen people more committed that we have right now and um, anxious and excited to be in the program, holding each other accountable, you know, supporting each other. I'm seeing a lot of success. I am seeing some failures. Absolutely. Um, best, best story that I have is a woman that was in jail who um, had a serious, serious drug problem. And I didn't know what to do with her. She had a child while she was having, while she was in drug court and she was still abusing. And you know what that means. If you're abusing while you're parenting your child, DCF is going to come in and take your child away. And they took her baby away. And I did something I've never done before with her. I had her while in jail write a letter to her son saying goodbye and telling him why she was unable to be a mother and why addiction led to this. Because I had that experience from dependency, and I knew she had a real chance of having her parental rights terminated. And I told her that, and she wrote that letter. And it, she said, it, well, when I announced that sentence, like announced that, it's not a sentence, it's a sanction, right? Mm -hmm. And I announced that you could hear the gasps in the courtroom, like, oh! <gasps> And there, people couldn't believe I did that because it seemed kind of cruel. And I'm going to admit it did. And that doesn't sound compassionate, right? It's not my MO. It was coming from compassion because you knew it what it was going to do. James, it did. And she, after she wrote that letter and she got out of jail and she worked her butt off and she got reunited with her child and she graduated from our program, she's a complete success. And we have, you know, graduation, a lot of stories like that, really and truly. But that's the one that sticks out if you ask me right now. Um, so, yeah. Beautiful. Well, yeah. I think that's the problem is that, you know, the naysayers will find those anomalies, you know, um, and use that as, as, as case when, you know, to, to not try, to not put the effort in. Well, you know, the, this addict went through court and it didn't work. Yeah. You know, we need to hear these success stories because I think, yeah. you know, with the bell curve as well, you know, you get one that was an addict and now, you know, as a president of the United States, that's the one outlier. And then you have the other side where it didn't work. Well, yeah. if we can get as many in the middle, 
to improve and, and shift that over to the right, then yeah. you know, that's, that, that's what we need to hear. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an incredible conversation. It was an absolute disaster at the beginning with my dogs just losing their minds. Look how quiet and good they are. Oh, now. yeah, they're exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, James. It's been an honor to talk to you. 